to be or not to be that is the question or uh, maybe it is to netflix and chill or to prime and pass time for you i can tell you these days the question for me has been am i ready for this episode or not considering i've been two days late in putting up this episode in the first place and in these trying times of covid-19 many of you have had far more pressing and life changing questions to address about your work about your teams your businesses your employment your personal space and so many other facets of your life so many questions so many decisions to make questions keep changing but they all beg for a resolution to the tension of the choices the decision itself and taking decisions have always been a part of being human but taking them in times when we don't know what is in store for us tomorrow becomes a critical skill for us to have what makes a person or a team great at taking decisions through uncertainty and is making the right decision everything Let's munch on this together in today's episode of Management on Toast. Okay, okay, I know I am picking up a topic on which so much has been written about and debated. And in these times where the measure of a government or an organization is made with the kind of decisions they have made, it is all people are hearing about. but in all my reading and research to create this episode what really stood out strong are four things that every decision had or should have had the first was the objective the second the obstacles the third the options and fourth the optimal way yeah i know the last one was bit forced but go with me on the four os So when you have to make a decision whether it is about your next meal at home or your next move into business you begin with what we call as the objective some people call it the problem statement others call it the central question others the what whatever it is called what it needs is soul searching and deep digging it is to know where is the fire and what type of fire it is that we are trying to put out but the process gets short circuited many times mainly because we are in such a hurry to put out the fire but effective managers take the time to investigate and enlist the help of everyone on their team to do the same any self-respecting researcher will tell you to know the problem correctly is solving half the problem having understood the what you then need to focus on the what now the obstacles or what we call as blockers or the issues in answering the questions it stands between you and the decision you need to take without this the decision would have already been taken and we underestimate its importance but these last few months have humbled us into the realization just how many things we are accustomed to because there were no obstacles to getting it getting your favorite bottle of booze or getting a cake for someone's birthday or even getting toilet paper no obstacles means easy decision making but in certain times that is not a guarantee with some people though a glass half empty just means they are at a different kind of party 
looking for open doors that is not the answer itself but can lead you towards it is a great way forward what comes after this is the what's new the options the solutions it is the elixir of life itself for most people it finds a place on our cvs and is probably part of the skill set we rattle out to everyone i guess because it uses most of our creative faculties and is closest to the decision making from setting up different alternatives and critiquing them to brainstorming as many ideas as humanly possible but problem solving is not the same as decision making it is just a station on the way to our final destination that is the decision and i know the journey is more important than the destination but learning from the journey adds value only if there was something we had to add value to to begin with the solving would not matter if a decision was not impacted by it which is why peter drucker perhaps said and whenever you see a successful business you know someone has made a courageous decision and then we take our final step figuring out what's next the optimal way forward or the decision itself and we need to synthesize and make sense of what we know from the previous three o's that we can be involved in without making it seem like you were here just to garnish the dish someone else has made there are perhaps as many ways to do this as there are people who engage in it of objectives the obstacles the open doors the options before finding out what is the best route to choose what is the lesser of many evils or the greater of all good we can do or the least of the steps we can take as straightforward as it may sound even in all my detailed explanation of this decision making process there is so much going on under the hood beginning with the lifeline of all decisions the data before we step into the next segment i thought i'd reach out to all of you about the podcast so if you like what you're listening to and you want to stay on top of my latest episodes subscribe to management on toast which is now on your favorite streaming platform you can also join me through the anchor app which i'm using to record this podcast and you can interact with me there through voice messages And if you don't like how your voice sounds when it's recorded, no problem, you can write to me with your questions and suggestions for topics and feedback. Trust me, I rely on that extensively to be able to build my next episode either by emailing me on mgt on toast that's m g t o n t o a s t at @gmail.com or messaging me on my Twitter handle at @mgt on toast that's at the rate M G T O N T O A S T When it comes to data every step of every decision ever taken has relied on it and it comes in its myriad forms information anecdotes past experiences future predictions intuitively it seems that the more data we have the better is our decision making but research will show you that when humans engage 
in decision-making process, less is better. And in times of uncertainty, when time and other resources are in short supply, having the right data and the right amount of data can go a long way in enabling you being able to take high-quality decisions. Think about that though for a second. In all the decisions you've had to take in your life right now, what data is absolutely crucial for you to make an informed choice? Well, if you apply the 80-20 rule, you'd say only 20% of the data that you're gathering right now gives you about 80% of the confidence in the decisions you make. There is no way I'm making a suggestion right now for you to stop gathering the other data points. But it is more a check if you know which data points fall in that coveted 20% slot and which one of those are perhaps part of that 80% data. Do that for a second uh, while I go and grab myself a cup of coffee. I love a cold cup of coffee. Not just in the summers, but if my health and weather allows it, in every season. And there's a reason for that. You see, many years ago, when I was commuting by train back home from college, I once stopped at a stall at the train station to have a samosa and some tea. And as luck would have it, the train I was waiting for arrived in early and I had to board it somehow, anyhow. But I was not going to do that leaving my snacks behind. Now, the samosa could travel with me in my hand, but the tea was a bit difficult to carry around considering that it was in a little glass cutting chai cup. So I downed the tea in a quick swig and ran towards the train. It was only after a few seconds did I realize that the tea was so piping hot that it scalded my palate. And ever since that day, I've avoided any hot beverage like a plague. In fact, even if I take in a hot beverage accidentally, I wait for a few minutes for it to go cold and then have it. Well, I'm telling you this personal anecdote to highlight to you that our life and the decisions we take in it are not all scientific and clinical and rational. It is filled with experiences and perceptions and stories and narratives that helps us make sense of the world faster. What we call as heuristics. Think of heuristics essentially as shortcuts our brains take to make sense of what is happening around us. Now, while heuristics are meant to simplify everyday decision-making, in many complex cases, it tends to complicate things by allowing biases to creep into our decisions. Like when we have unconsciously chosen an option, we give high weightage to the data that supports that option. That's called as confirmation bias. Or in instances where we have worked on something so many times before, we believe we are 100% right on it. And sometimes we go even so far as to say that we are better than anyone else who has worked on the same thing, even if we have no evidence to support that claim. Now that's called overconfidence bias. And I'm sure you've definitely heard of the status quo bias before. The this is how we do things around here trope that we hear in teams and organizations. And the sunken cost bias, which has led to the funding of so many dead horse projects. We have so many biases. I can't believe humans are allowed within 10 feet of any decision that is being taken with all these effects of the biases on us. But that's exactly the point of our redemption. The fact that these biases are just effects, filters that we unknowingly choose to put on the picture of our reality. 
and it colors the decisions in its hue. Acute awareness of the biases you have and working to remove it from your decisions will help you keep your decisions grounded in reality. Take a moment now to think about what biases are you wearing right now that you need to uncheck to get the real picture. So I explained my views around biases through a personal anecdote. So let me share with you two more stories to clarify a little bit more about another facet of decision making. Our first story takes us back to 1979, to Rochester, New York, where the headquarters of the most formidable technology company of its time stood, the Eastman Kodak Company. Now everyone mentions how Kodak's employees were the ones who invented the digital camera way back in 1975, and yet no one did anything about it within Kodak. This story, however, is about a report that came a few years later by one of its executives, Lawrence Matheson. Based on all the evidence they had gathered, the report predicted that the mass market would transition from film to digital technology by the year 2010. Now imagine if you were in that boardroom, occupying one of the director's seat, and this is what you hear from one of your executives. That a Greenhorn project that you have within Kodak, the digital camera, is all set to take over an established business that has taken decades to form its foundations. What would your immediate reaction be? I'm certain anyone would want to attack the hell out of such a claim. People are so used to printing and storing photographs. How will they do that with a digital camera which has no reel in it? Or the fact that the quality of the pictures that are displayed on the television screen from this digital camera are so grainy while the print quality is miles ahead of it. Why would anyone in their right mind choose a digital camera? That was one story. Let me now share with you another story which is from a few years later in 1983. On the night of September 26th in Moscow, Lieutenant Colonel Stanislav Petrov was going about his work at the Serpukhov 15 bunker, which housed the command center of the Soviet early wanting satellites. Lieutenant Colonel Petrov was the officer on duty at that command center, and he was monitoring the satellite's early warning network to inform his superiors of any impending attack against the Soviet Union. Just after midnight, the computer reported that one intercontinental ballistic missile was heading towards the Soviet Union from the United States. Could this be possible? And before they could think of it, there were four more missiles headed on their way from the US all the way to USSR. Could this really be happening? Five intercontinental ballistic missiles on their way to decimate the USSR. Remember, this was the 1980s, the peak of the Cold War between these two superpowers. It was also the time when the US President Ronald Reagan referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire. And just earlier that month, on September 1st, the USSR had accidentally shot down a Korean Airlines passenger plane that was headed to Seoul from the US when it flew into Russian airspace. And in that flight, they killed the congressman and several American passengers. 
The counterattack does not seem unlikely now, does it? Now, if now, just imagine you were in that bunker. Would you follow protocol and inform your superiors about this situation of five missiles heading towards the country? Or do you consider the possibility that it is a malfunction? And remember, all of this needs to happen within a few minutes because that missile will be here in 30 minutes' time. The fact that we are not living through nuclear winter gives us a hint of perhaps what happened that day. Imagine how important was it that Lieutenant Colonel Petrov's intuition worked in favor of humanity that day. So, here were two stories, both completely different in their context and yet bonded together by the process of decision-making. Kodak's executives, while seeming very deliberate in their decision, were actually completely throttled by their fears of the unknown and the change that no one wanted. From where they were standing, a photograph chemicals and product specialist company going for a completely alien technology, like digital photography, would have seemed like jumping into the abyss especially when they were perfectly safe where they were. So the leaders justified why the transition to digital would be a painful process for them. The managers feared that if the technology came in, they would have no expertise in the space and would be eventually redundant in the organization. And the hundreds of researchers, engineers, technicians thought that this digital camera thing was just another fad, one among many that they may have seen at Kodak over the years. And collectively, they unconsciously promoted a type of groupthink, where agreeing with each other became important for their survival, more important than the greater good of the organization that nurtured it. The problem here wasn't that they rejected the findings of the report. It was that they did not even consider it a possibility and made a decision that ultimately proved fatal for the company's existence. So what is the answer to this then? Is it going by our instincts? Isn't that what Lieutenant Colonel Petrov did? Well, this is where we misread the 1983 nuclear false alarm incident. If it was just pure instincts, we would have quite literally experienced extinction by instinct. This is where the instinct takes over an entire decision, hijacking it without any planning or thorough systematic process. But Lieutenant Colonel Petrov's decision was not just instincts. It was well-deliberated, speedy decision-making. What helped him in this? His education as a radio engineer, his training for years in the Soviet Air Forces, in the process of warfare and strategy, and his expertise in the early warning detection system. He brought this experience and knowledge to good use and concluded that the alarm must be an error because a first-strike nuclear attack from the U.S., would be one with hundreds of simultaneous missile launches to disable any means of Soviet counterattack. His experience with the early detection satellite system, especially the fact that it was not entirely reliable and he himself knew that the system was raw, helped him confirm his conclusion of the false alarm. Many years later, when Lieutenant Colonel Petrov was asked to describe the decision, he said it was a half-guess. What he underplays in it so humbly is that the other half of that decision was well-informed, well-researched, 
well-trained and synthesized in those split seconds. Given a choice between immense knowledge and unbounded conviction, every one of us, including the Kodak execs and Lieutenant Colonel Petrov, would choose knowledge in being able to make those complex decisions. And that is a great choice. It helps one see the issues not just in binary form, but with all its shades in between. It helps one maintain a level of self-doubt, which is critical not to get too cocky in their ways of decision-making. But it is just as necessary then to flex the intuitive muscle groups so that one can synthesize information at lightning speed and decisions can be taken in a time-sensitive manner. Which skills are these that help us be more effective in our decision-making in this speedy manner? Open mindset, adaptability, managing change, progressive thinking, collaborative spirit, agile thinking, and empathy. And while we cannot build all of these skills in a day, the best crucible for them actually is uncertain times. You've just heard how decision-making, while essential to the way we live and work, can be a complex process. And when you add uncertainty into that mix, it just makes it that much more difficult to negotiate. Uncertainty actually just strains the system by forcing us to deliberate and decide on things we wouldn't have had to bat an eyelid about in other circumstances. Take the current crisis, for instance. Forcing people to worry about where they get their supplies from, reaching their homes safely, having a job and continuing to have a decent standard of living, all while fighting off the COVID-19 virus that could threaten their health very easily. Dealing with these challenges that they do not have to face in other times causes severe anxiety and stress among people. How well can they deal with crisis in that case? On the contrary, the negativity bias actually causes them to prepare for the worse, even when that is not the case, causing people to stockpile and hold on to supplies, be hurtful to friends and family, and generally just losing the ability to be effective in one's work. Uncertainty also creates urgency because of there being so many unknown variables that we only figure out too late in the day. This leaves us with very little time to work out how to deal with the situation. Between sudden lockdowns and constantly changing regulations and protocols each day, escalating emergencies at work and client-side crises, we've reached a point where everything needs to be solved as of yesterday and is a do-or-die situation. But most of all, the fog of uncertainty causes the freeze response in our brains to activate. When we are not quite sure what would solve the problem, we would like to think of the challenge as a bad phase that will pass over us without adversely affecting us. And all we have to do is sit tight and close our eyes. And our inaction could lead us to a greater catastrophe than the one if we did take some form of action. There is no sure shot way of fixing this challenge. God, I wish I had one to suggest to you. 
But here are some things you can think of the next time someone comes knocking at your door for a decision. Clearly identify your objectives, obstacles, open doors and options before you work out the optimal way ahead. Remember that the problem solving process can be extremely satisfying, but the process is still incomplete if it does not help you take a decision. Verify the need of the data you're gathering and its efficacy in the decision making process. The best decisions are ones taken with the least amount of data. Be acutely aware of your biases. We all have them. There's nothing to hide in it. It is part of what makes us human and helped us survive through the evolutionary journey. But do not let it encumber your rational thinking and judgment. Find the balance between intuition and deliberation in your decision-making process. What Daniel Kahneman calls system 1 and system 2 thinking. And while I hope a lot of time is being spent analyzing and deliberating information, it is also crucial for you to build your intuitive muscles and co-opting your team in the decision-making process. Combat uncertainty by bringing in routine in whatever parts you control. Engage with your team and earn their trust in the decision-making process. Stay curious for as long as the situation allows and go meta by thinking about how you thought things through after each decision you take. You also need to give yourself some space and time to decompress and take a pause when you can to allow your mental faculties to make sense of the tons of data you're hit with in these uncertain times. Be it through meditation or a passion project some quiet time engaging in an activity you like any one of those could do but use your time and the time of your team judiciously by building for a just in case scenario in addition to the usual just in time schedule that we are so used to that's all for this episode on management on toast What did you think of it? Have you had decision dilemmas in these uncertain times? And what has been your strong suit in your decision making process? Intuition or deliberation? Share with me your experiences and your questions about decision making through my Twitter handle at the rate mgt on toast or via email. The address is mgt on toast at gmail dot com. I learn a lot from you my listener and it would be really helpful if you could share your thoughts about this episode. Every bit of feedback you share goes a long way in shaping how my future episodes pan out. And do send me your questions through Twitter or email or through a voice message on the Anchor app which has helped me host and edit and put together this podcast. You'll find the links to these in my episode description. Thank you so much for listening. I want to give a big shout out to Lata Ayer, to Krishna Bhatt and to Shweta Kavle, my friends from the organizations I've worked with currently and in the past. Thank you so much uh, for all your support and the feedback and thanks to others who in your own special way, I've not named you, but you've shared your feedback with me and helped me put together this episode. I hope to see you all for another serving of Management on Toast very soon. See ya.